Hi, I'm Chris Sarandon. Welcome to Cooking by Heart, where we revisit the vivid memories of the food we grew up with. I couldn't believe the tastes and the flavors. Lydia Bastianich. Hi, Chris. Susan Sarandon. And the people and the stories attached to that time in our lives. I was the one sort of like Mommy Dearest. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we're fittingly coming to you from JP's Diner, smack dab in the middle of Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut. My guest today is federal judge Joseph R. Goodwin. Goodwin graduated first in his law school class at West Virginia University and was editor of the Law Review to everyone's astonishment, including his. He then founded his own law firm, He practiced law for 25 years and he became chairman of the West Virginia Democratic Party and in 1995 was nominated as a United States District Court judge by President Clinton. He was confirmed by the Senate that year and has served on the court since. But I think his most important accomplishment was his performance as Fire Lawrence to my Romeo in our college production of Romeo and Juliet at West Virginia University. I take great pleasure in introducing my good friend, Joe Bob Goodwin. Judge Goodwin. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm just great. How are you doing? I'm fine. Are, are you are you in chambers? Is that where you are? I am. Uh, I'm actually in a conference room, which is right off of my main office. Oh, because oh, a few minutes ago when we were sort of talking with each other, uh, you were making a ruling literally as we were talking? Was, for a motion, uh, I've got a I've got a uh, criminal trial starting tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, and uh, a motion was sent in by the defendant. Yeah, and uh, I've been doing this a while now, so I was able I know. to rule on. Well, <laughs> you know, folks, if those of you who are who are not seeing this podcast on video, Judge Goodwin looks like the perfect judge. He's got the the rimless spectacles, solid white hair. Trusted authority figure. That's him right there. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not so sure it was always that way. I, I started graying very young. Yeah. In my thirties, and I tried dyeing it, uh, but it turned green, and I, <laughs> then I gave up. We just went to white. Yes, I think. I think you were. You made a good choice. Uh, uh, part of this podcast, or at least the 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 roots of this podcast are a lot about where we come from. Um, and uh, I'm interested in you're giving us a little background about where you grew up, small town, West Virginia. Well, I grew up in a town a little bit smaller than yours. Yeah, yeah. You grew up in Beckley, West Virginia. Uh, I grew up in a town called Ripley, uh, less than 5,000 people. It's still less than 5,000 people. Uh, my uh, dad was a lawyer there. Uh, he uh, was mayor for 10 years. Oh, wow. And I, I was kind of a town kid, and uh, everything uh, around it was farming, uh, a farming community. Right. So it, it was a typical 40s and 50s uh, small town America. A diverse town? Not at all. Not at all. There was only one African American family in the entire county and by the wow. time i was uh, in grade school only one member of that family was still there uh, and it was even less 
uh, diverse, not less, but similarly diverse religious uh, and other uh, uh, groups. Ethnicities? I can't. I didn't know what a Muslim was. I uh, knew that one fellow was uh, Jewish, and I knew that some people called Catholics went to a church in (laughs) Ravenswood, which was 14 (laughs) miles away. It was that isolated. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's slightly different, but I think also uh, our experience in West Virginia was there was much more of a coexistence, I think. With at least in my town, with African American families, I know we had neighbors who were right next to us who were African American, and there was a but there was definitely a division in terms of the, the the parts of town. There was a part of town that was much more of an African American part of town had its own school, and when desegregation came, it came more slowly for that reason. Um, but uh, tell me then about what it was like at home since we're talking about food, Judge. Uh, uh, what it was like at your house at dinner time? You had siblings, well, yes. I did. I, uh, I had two brothers. Uh, my uh, next brother—I was the oldest. My next brother was fourteen months younger than I, uh, and then a younger brother, a couple years younger than that. And right. All three ended up uh, practicing law together. Uh, <laughs> but in terms of meals, it was meat and potatoes. Uh, we were wartime kids. I was born in 42, and uh, we ate, uh, you know, canned foods. Frozen foods hadn't really come along yet. Right. I remember I remember when the family got in the manna freezer uh, oh. and bought a half a side of beef and filled it up. That was a, a miracle. Right. Uh, we had canned asparagus, which made oh. me miss out on the experience of asparagus. Until I was at least thirty for a for a long time, I remember canned asparagus too, because there wasn't that much fresh vegetation except in the summertime when people had gardens. You guys had gardens, did you? We had gardens, and we had neighbors that had gardens. And our next door neighbor raised chickens, and he liked to uh, torture us by demonstrating how you killed a chicken with a hatchet on a tree stump, and the let the chicken then run around with it headless. Oh. It was gruesome, and, and I probably shouldn't have brought it up on your podcast. That, that, no, please, that's quite all right. We're we're talking about the entire experience of food, <laughs> not just not just the the uh, the sunny side. Uh, the, in fact, there was a, a an abattoir in the back of my dad's restaurant, and uh, I had a lot of the same experience because when we would drive into the alley behind the restaurant, the abattoir was literally like you know. 20, 30 feet away, and there were chickens hanging up, headless chickens hanging up on the on hooks with their feet still kind of flapping around. Uh, those of you who uh, um, find this distasteful, I, I apologize, but that's part of the food experience, folks. Uh, and what was so the food itself was pretty much sort of drab, all-American kind of uh, bland. It, it was meat. It was, you know, it was... What you would probably get uh, at your dad's restaurant, but not as good because mm. my mother, uh, my mother was a good cook, but uh, not as good as your dad. And my dad also got the meat fresh. He got you know a whole side of beef. He'd butcher it and make all the cuts of meat, and and you know we got everything fresh all the time. Uh, and the times that I got to 
to eat there. I ate, I ate there every other week, so I got whatever I wanted, which was really quite extraordinary. Was there, was there um, uh, considering that there were three boys at the table, was it a rowdy table? No, that wasn't permitted. We, you uh. know, it, was, it, was a, it was a more formal time for uh, dinner back in those days. Right. You were, meant, you were meant to sit down and be ready to eat at 5 o'clock in the evening. Uh, because that's what time my dad got home, or five after. Right. We were meant to be ready to eat when he got there. And uh, uh, we were taught table manners at a young age, taught to set the table, where to put the fork and the knife and the spoon. Right. And uh, we all were encouraged to join in the conversation, and we were not to interrupt each other. So. It was, right. it was a more formal environment, uh, right. more strict than kids would put up with nowadays. I know, I know. Uh, it was very much the same at our table as well. You know, you, you, children were to be seen but not heard. Except, I mean, you probably had more conversations at your table. At our table, we talked about the dinner, basically. We talked about well, food. We, we didn't talk about anything well, else. Well, by the time I was uh, a little older, I got a dollar a week allowance, and I would spend it buying 10 comic books. And um, my dad was appalled by that until uh, one day I was talking to him about radar, which I'd read about in a comic book. And after I told him about what I knew about radar, he was all for reading uh, comic <laughs> books. But not books about radar. No, uh, books about right. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, did you guys eat spam? <laughs> well, uh, we liked spam a lot until uh, my dad came back from the Navy at the end of World War II, and uh, he had had nothing but spam uh, when he was on shore in New Guinea. Right, and he refused to have spam in the house, so it was banned. It was banned. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a funny story about New Guinea. Yeah. Uh, he was on the beach there. Uh, my uncle, uh, who, who was very close in age to my dad, was they also were both in, in the, the Navy. Both in the Navy. Both in the Navy. Yeah. Both lawyers. And uh, as far as they knew, they were on opposite sides of the world. Uh, but one day, my dad was coming out of the... Uh, tent on the beach in New Guinea, which was serving as an officer's club. And he ran into a guy and, and he said he was about to take a swing at him. And it turned out to be uh, my uncle and uh, his brother. It was, it was a big event because it wow. made the uh, uh, wire services and the New York Times that brothers had run into each other in New Guinea. Right. Not knowing that either was there. <laughs> Having no idea. Right. But, but and then, then my uncle took him out to the uh, to the uh, ship where they serve steak and not spam. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting because my brother was a a gourmet cook. He had four hundred cookbooks, right? And one of his favorite dishes was fried spam. He loved it. Now he made Thai food. He made. Uh, uh, all sorts of exotic dishes constantly. You know, he was constantly looking for different food experiences, but his great food experience was fried Spam. And if, if by the way, if none of our listeners know what Spam, or a few of our listeners don't know what Spam is, 
it was kind of a ground up meat product, right? Yes. Yeah. And it had a very specific smell to it. Uh, I can't think of anything that exists now that even it comes close to it. Uh, but I hear it's com- making a comeback, by the way. It it's is. Bad. And it, yeah. it has a completely different taste, uh, if cold as opposed to fried. So oh, yeah. Two different dishes. And right. it is, a, a, you may know this, a very favorite dish in the Philippines. A lot of uh, Philippine cooking is based on Spain. Really? It may have had something to do with World War II. I hadn't thought Probably. Probably. Yeah. Were you, were you a picky eater? No, no, I didn't have that opportunity. Um, I was told every meal that there were children in China that were starving. And I was meant to eat what was on my plate and clean it up. Right. The starving children in China gambit. That, that one worked all the time with me, too. I just had that picture in my head, and I, just, I scarfed it down. <laughs> I, I now, blame that for the extra 15 pounds I'm carrying. Now? Yes. <laughs> you have a long I'm memory. Still, Your I'm body has cleaning. a long memory. <laughs> I'm still cleaning my plate. <laughs> now, yeah, yeah, let's get back to the, the garden, because I have a big garden, and I, I love gardening. But, but you, you mentioned to me once that you worked in the garden when you were a kid? Oh, I did. Yeah, sure. I hoed corn and uh, uh Picked beans, strung the beans. You know, as I grew up, I continued to uh, work in the garden. Right. After, after law school, I had my own garden. I, li- I still like it. I, I've, I've moved to the big city now, uh, mm-hmm. all the 50,000 people. And, right. Uh, I don't have a garden. Now, did you, ever, did you ever eat straight from the garden? Like when you were picking things, did you eat then? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure being a West Virginia boy, you did the same thing I did, was oh. take a salt shaker straight out to the tomato patch, Yep, pick ripe tomato, and sit there and eat it. And there still n- is nothing better. Nothing in the world like a fresh tomato right off the vine, a little salt right there, and you just chomp down. Oh, delicious. Oh. Now, delicious. W- were, there, were there other people around... Uh, when you guys were growing up, who were cooking as well as your mom? My cousin, uh, who was close to my uh, mother, uh, came back from the war with a Scottish bride. And uh, she was a wonderful woman. And she loved to cook. And she did a lot of cooking at our house. And uh, I remember in particular, uh, she made fried fish. Uh, fish and chips. And uh, she was really good at it. And I, I still use her recipe. It's not very complicated. What is it? Well, uh, self-rising flour with the addition of about a half a teaspoon of baking powder. Right. And then mix, mix it with water until it will run off of the uh, fish fillet, uh, but cling to it. I, I don't know about the, about the thickness of syrup. Yep. And then fry it in very hot grease and you have And that's it. Fried fish. Yeah. What Salt. what kind of what kind of fish was available then in uh, in Ripley? In in Ripley it was frozen uh, by oh. fillet of sole. Oh. Okay. Were. Not cod I, or anything. Well, I guess fillet of sole and cod are somewhat the same. I don't know. Uh, cod is, has a little more sort of deep flavor to it than soul. Okay. Soul's a little blander, a little blander. 
Um, and also, uh, uh, once you talked about this great bread recipe. Yeah, my wife's uh, father was a family physician in uh, Buchanan, West Virginia, another small town, although they had a housekeeper. She was a patient of his from out in the country in Upshur County, and they hired her, and she came and lived with them and did cooking. But she was a full-time right. housekeeper. And she made the most delicious homemade bread, and they had it for every meal. And I wanted to know how to bake it, but she didn't read or write, and she'd never Totally illiterate? Totally. And uh, so I had to watch her make the bread, and uh, when she dumped the flour into the big bowl, I had to take it back out by the glass bowl and count the number of glasses, and... uh, I did so the she same just, thing. would she take handfuls of flour? No, actually, I, I took a, a water glass. No, no, but I mean, when she, how did she measure it? Oh, she just dumped it in from the flour sack. Oh. It, it, was, it was not uh, ex- an exact science of, of baking. Uh, right. It, I, I guess the, the professional bakers now would call it granny bread, mm. uh, but it's wonderful. It has lots of Crisco, lots of sugar. Uh, uh, you put milk on the stove, about four quarts of milk, uh, and then you heat it up until it's lukewarm. She said luck warm. Uh, and uh, then you, you add that in a, a luck warm water with yeast. Right. Uh, as I recall, as I recall, two cakes of yeast, or maybe three, I can't recall. Right, right. No, no, none of this dry yeast stuff. No, 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 no. no That's no. too fancy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the bread is totally delicious, right? It's fantastic. I, I attribute, you still make it? I do. I attribute the good qualities to all the Crisco and sugar. Absolutely. And, and, and as unhealthy as it can be. No whole, not a, not, not a scintilla of whole grain in there. Not a bit. And the Crisco was, is measured into, it's about five pounds of flour. Uh, Whoa. If you weigh it and you take five kitchen spoons, you know, about yeah, yeah. a big kitchen spoon. Right. Heaping. And you take three of those into that five pounds of flour and then three of those heaping full of sugar. And uh, a tablespoon heaping of salt, right? And uh, and the luck warm milk, and right? Cow, cow warm, you got it, right? 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 She probably grew up on a farm. She did, and probably I think the, the object was to get the milk, as you say, cow warm. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh man! Well, the next time you make that bread, will you freeze some for me, and uh, we'll 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 have some together. We'll we'll toast I, bread. I, I promise. I promise. I will. <laughs> now, I, well, I, I only, wanna... if you, only if you ship me fresh produce from your farm. Oh, okay. It's a deal. It's a deal. <laughs> uh, now, you and I were were uh, theater wonks in college. I'm going to segue a little bit here because it, it interests me to, that how how the theater and law are related in any way, or are they? How did you get into law? I mean, I know it's a family business, but. Well, I think uh, it's 
90% of it's attributable to my lack of talent in theater. Ah. Uh, I enjoyed very much being a theater major in college, as you'll recall. Yes. I kind of made, majored in play rehearsal and drinking beer. Right. And did, barely graduated. Uh, never much of a student. Uh, and I had signed up for uh, ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps. Right. Uh, only because they paid uh, $27 a month or something. And uh, I found out to my uh, surprise that that meant that after I graduated, I had to go in the Army. Oh, and if right. I hadn't done that, I would have been a starving actor and probably then uh, something. Uh, I would have waited tables for a very long time. Yes, yes. So, so how did that progress to law school? It was during the Vietnam War, and uh, I, I was in at a time you got promoted pretty fast. So, uh, why? Well, company great company great officers were getting killed at a very rapid rate, and so I made captain in two and a half years. Oh, and uh, which was good because I could then get paid at it, at the captain's wages. Uh, Anyway, I was about ready to get out of the uh, Army, Chris, after doing my duty, and uh, I didn't have anything to do. I hadn't given it much thought. I, my, my future planning was not my strong suit. And I uh, was talking to my brother on the phone, and he was in law school, and he recommended that I go to law school. And I said, you know, I've got a 2-6 overall in theater. I don't think any law school that has any respect for itself will allow me to go through the door. And he said, <laughs> he said, they've got this new test. It's called the law school aptitude test. And so I signed up and uh, I got a little booklet in the mail after I signed up for the test. And it had a, uh, in the back, it had a sample test. Mm -hmm. And I sat down at the dining room table in my little military housing unit. And I took the sample test, and I got all of them right. Well, that had never happened in my entire life. <laughs> Your entire academic career, right? Yeah, I, I just was out of, out of sync. Uh, so I thought, well, they called it an aptitude test. I'll try it. And I took the aptitude test, and I got a really high score. And I thought, well, you know, if it really is what it's supposed to be, I'll go to law school and try it. And I knew from the moment. Uh, that I sat down in my first class in 10 minutes. I knew I was in the right place and I'd found the right job. You'd I, found your calling. I, I had. I, I truly had that almost spiritual experience with the law. And I love it as much now as I did then. And that's why oh, I'm still working at my age. Well, yeah, you're, you're blessed in that way. And so am I, by the way, uh, that we both found what we wanted to do uh, early enough that we didn't have to live a life of, uh, what, abject uh, misery, <laughs> doing something we didn't well, want to you, do. But you, you knew you were a good actor when you were in college, and uh, you were nominated for an Academy Award in about five minutes after you got out of college. So Well, no, actually, I, I, it took much longer than that. It was about, uh, <laughs> ten, about 10 or 12 years later, actually. <laughs> but, but thank you for that compressed uh, time frame. Uh, <laughs> uh, and... Uh, what, where did your interest in where did your interest in food start? 
well, I've always, you know, I've always been interested in food, uh, you know, from the time that I grew up and was uh, getting stuff out of the garden. Uh, but we had we had some interesting places that we would go out to eat on rare occasions. Right. And Ripley, we had Dominic's Steakhouse, uh, which I remember fondly. Right. Uh, I had no idea that I had I had no concept of nationalities. I am assuming now that Dominic was probably Italian, uh, but he used T-bone steaks, and we would get a T-bone steak and a salad with Roquefort dressing and a baked potato, and the steak was always broiled uh, with oregano, and uh, that definitely was Italian memorable meal as a kid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I had another question for you because I know that at one point in your career you were associated with uh, a man named Jay Rockefeller, who was from the Rockefeller family, the obvious, you know, the 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 scion of the family, one of the scions of the family, and that he was the governor of the state of West Virginia. That he came to West Virginia for what reason? He had, had been a, a high up official in the Peace Corps at a very young age and uh, came back to West Virginia to do community service. And then he ran for the House of Delegates. And then uh, from there to, uh, I believe, Secretary of State of West Virginia. And uh, that's when I got to know him. And then he ran for governor again successfully twice. And then for the United States Senate. Right. So that, that and that he, he, was a, he was a, indeed a senator. Now, was he a senator with with uh, Senator Byrd? He absolutely was. Uh, senator Byrd was much his senior uh, as, as a senator. Senator Byrd. Now, we're, was, we're, for the folks who don't know what we're talking about, this is a man by the name of Robert Byrd who served in the Senate for how many years? Well over fifty years. Fifty well years 50 in years. the Senate, right? Yeah. And he was one of the the towering figures in the history of the United States Senate. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was majority leader for many years, right? And he uh, stepped down as majority leader to become chairman of the Appropriations Committee because he could bring more money home to West Virginia. To West Virginia, he told me about at at that time that his goal was to bring a billion dollars to West Virginia, and uh, he told me about a year later he said. I have exceeded my goal. I've brought in more than a billion dollars for roads. And he brought in such things later as the FBI fingerprint uh, and forensics uh, right. center and many other things to West Virginia. But he, what, he, he was a great man. What, what was great about him? Uh, other, than, he, other than he was great for the state. Well, he was brilliant and... He loved learning, and he took the responsibility of being a leader, a political leader, uh, seriously. He told me once, he said, when other people jog their bodies, I jog my mind. Mm. And he had routines, uh, for example, uh, when he got a haircut, he told me he would always memorize a poem. Uh, when he did something else, he would memorize or learn something else. Right. He didn't go to movies. He didn't go to sporting events. Uh, he read. He read. Yeah. And learned. Yeah, yeah. Remarkable guy. 
And you you told me a funny story once about when he was a senator and he was invited to the White House. Well, that was actually the time he came to ask me to be a federal judge. Oh, he didn't, he didn't come to. He really didn't come and say President Clinton wants to appoint you as a federal judge. He says, "I want to make you a federal judge." Right. And, uh, at the same conversation before we got to the, that serious moment. Uh, I asked him if he and Mrs. Bird uh, went to the White House. And uh, he says, I used to. Uh, he said, I don't do it much anymore. He said, when you go over there now, the minute you step outside, the other senators run over you toward a TV camera and uh, nothing productive gets done. And he said, Irma liked uh, going there once for a party, but that was quite enough for her. <laughs> and, uh, so they didn't go back. I've, I don't know if this is interesting to you, Chris, but uh, when uh, Nixon was president, uh, mm -hmm. he had an opening on the United States Supreme Court, and he was having a difficult time filling it. And he tried to appoint a guy named Carswell, and a scandal ensued. Uh, I remember that, yeah. And uh, he tried to appoint a, a distinguished judge from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, and that didn't go. And Senator Byrd had invited him to come to West Virginia to the Forest Festival. And so he was flying with Nixon on Air Force One uh, down to Elkins for the Forest Festival. And Nixon said, I'm having a hell of a time, Robert, uh, getting someone to be on the Supreme Court. Would you consider doing it? And Senator Byrd says, well, you know, I got my law school at night while I've been in the Congress, but I've never practiced law. He said, let me talk to Irma, who was Mrs. His Burke. wife. Yep. And he went home that night, talked to her, and he uh, decided to pass the word back to uh, Governor Conley of Texas, who was tight uh, with uh, Nixon, uh, that he didn't feel qualified uh -huh. for the job. And then he looked at me and he said, but, you know, I could have done it. I bet he could have. I think he would have made a great Supreme Court justice. You know, considering his erudition and his, his, his love of learning, he'd have been uh, uh, one of the great Supreme Court justices of history, probably. I think he would have. I'd, uh, he was one of the finer people I ever knew, much less a, a public servant. He was, yeah, you know, he came uh, from... Uh, from the town of what, what they call, uh, where I come from, they call it Sophie. It's mm -hmm. actually Sophia, S-O-P-H-I-A, but they call it Sophie. And uh, that's where I believe he was born and bred. He so was actually born uh, uh, in Virginia. Oh. His, mother died, his mother died, and his father couldn't uh, afford to raise him. So he went to live with an uh, uncle or an aunt brother, and uh, changed his name from Sales, which was the name he was uh, born with, to Bird, which was the uh, uncle's name, mm -hmm. and grew up in Sophie, Yeah, and yeah. Uh, worked there and grew up in that very, very rural environment. Very rural, yeah, extremely, extremely. Became a butcher. Um, right. Uh, and... Uh, then he ran for the House of Delegates in West Virginia, 
He played the fiddle and he ran all over uh, playing. I remember him campaigning, playing the fiddle. He would always bring his fiddle along when he campaigned. Yes, sir. Well, well, this is a um, a, a little uh, lesson in in uh, West Virginia history, but also American yeah. history, folks. Uh, yeah. Also, I just wanted you to talk briefly, since we were we're we're in uh, sort of adjacent to your throne, where you uh, <laughs> where you sit in judgment, <laughs> judge. And you were talking about the psychology of um, the way uh, the court is structured and exactly how it operates in terms of the psychology of it. Can you, can you just run that by us once? Well, it's important, uh, and it's become less so as time goes on, and I, I think it's a bad thing. Uh, it used to be that if you went to a lawyer's office, you expected them to be wearing a coat and tie and dressed like a lawyer. It was sort of a uniform. Right. When I went to law school, you had to wear a coat and tie every day. Uh, we uh, expect uh, people in positions of authority or holding uh, offices in our society uh, to act and uh, be in certain environments. The court room, as you're talking about, puts judges up on a bench at an elevation. If you think about it, we do that with lots of other officials or uh, the heads of institutions we value. We put our preachers up uh, at another on a higher level. Right, the pulpit, a pulpit, right. Churches. Um, and uh, I think those totems of uh, responsibility to help develop and maintain the respect of the people who come to court. Uh, There's a big fad now, especially with the COVID pandemic, to do uh, court proceedings by television. Uh, There's a lot of difference if you're a a litigant and walking into a block room, uh, center block room, and staring at a TV camera Mm -hmm. as opposed walking in my cherry-paneled, uh, Robert C. Byrd-funded uh, fancy <laughs> courtroom and right. looking up at the huge seal behind my chair and the uh, flags on either side. Uh, those things add a dignity and solemnity and importance to the function of government that I think is important to its uh, existence and yeah, and it also and also it also gives the litigants and the and the public a sense of uh, that that what is coming the judgments that are coming down are fair, uh, if not fair to everybody, at least fair and given the circumstances. We come we come to respect uh, the the courts, the Supreme Court. Uh, a good example, and this is not intended uh, to be political. Uh, but it's been used as the best example, is the legitimacy of the United States Supreme Court uh, was of of great concern after they rendered their decision in the election dispute case of Bush versus Gore, because there was some debate about the uh, credibility of the legal reasoning and a very sharply divided court. And yet, because the institution of the court over time had uh, been so respected and because 
we looked upon the court as the court and not a collection of politicians. Right. We respected that decision, accepted it, and went on. I think I always resent it when somebody says, uh, I was a Clinton judge, or one of my colleagues was a uh, Bush judge. I, I can say this with, with absolute certainty. I've, I've been a federal judge for 27 years. I have never known one of my colleagues, and I've had several now, that has rendered an opinion that I thought was even slightly political. Wow. That's quite extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. Well, I, 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 I'm going to conclude our, our uh, very informative and, and, and interesting talk by asking you, uh, returning to our original subject, what's the strongest, strongest memory you have growing up of, of food? The thing that you enjoyed the most, the thing that you uh, has lingered with you, that whenever you taste it or you smell it or you see it, um, uh, brings back that time in your life? Uh, there are competing ones, but I would say the main one is my mother's cinnamon rolls. Oh. She made, she made cinnamon rolls in an iron skillet uh, in the oven. And, uh, you know, they were just butter, sugar, brown right. sugar. And, uh, cinnamon was a, a dough, but they were wonderful. Uh, that would be my tie to home and to family and oh boy uh, up. that takes me back <laughs> well I'm I'm so so thankful that you were with us today Joe I really appreciate it um, and uh, I, I look forward to seeing you in person I look forward to it as well it's an honor being with you Chris oh and same I, here uh, and I look forward to seeing you and Joe again soon Okay, buddy. Take care. Take care.